Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth in Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jeeks Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guide of Funk. If you don't have your copy, hop on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be glad you did. As always, whether you're watching or listening, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. Featured in this episode is keyboardist, composer, producer, Matt Fink, who as Dr. Fink spent 12 years from 1979 to 1991 as a member of Prince's band, The Revolution, and contributed to numerous other projects as well. Aside from Morris Hayes, who spent 20 years of mostly continuous service with the new power generation, and who has also been on Truth and Rhythm, Fink worked closely with Prince longer than any other associate. He locked thousands of rehearsals, recording sessions, concerts, after shows, film and video shoots, and TV appearances with arguably modern times most gifted and accomplished musician. Among the classic albums were Dirty Mind, Controversy, 1999, Purple Rain, Around the World in a Day, and Parade. Key tracks and hits from those records, as well as B-sides, include Head, When You Were Mine, Let's Work, Little Red Corvette, Delirious, DMSR, Lady Cab Driver, Erotic City, When Doves Cry, Let's Go Crazy, Darling Nikki, Paisley Park, Raspberry Beret, She's Always in My Hair, 17 Days, Pop Life, Kiss, Mountains, Another Lover Hole in Your Head, Girls and Boys, and so many more. Fink was the only member of the revolution to stay on after the band was dissolved and also received credits on Prince's Sign of the Times, Black and Love Sexy albums, among others. Over his career, he has acquired more than 30 um, RIAA Diamond, Platinum, and Gold Record Awards and also MTV Grammy and American Music Awards. Following his time with Prince, Matt built his own Minneapolis-based facility called Starview Studios and expanded into numerous projects that included Ultrasound, his 2001 solo album. Fink continues to be very active today, and beginning after Prince's tragic 2016 death, he reunited with fellow Revolution members to perform tribute concerts dedicated to their fallen former leader, and are still doing those shows today. Here, Fink talks about working with one of the most creative forces music has ever known, the chemistry, personalities, and talent of the revolution, some of the amazing albums and songs of that period, unforgettable memories and highlights, dealing with the loss of Prince and carrying the legacy forward, and more. So without further ado, paging Dr. Fink, Dr. Fink, you're wanted for Truth and Rhythm Surgery. I am thrilled to welcome to Truth and Rhythm keyboardist, composer, producer, Matt Fink, best known by the name Dr. Fink in his surgical scrubs attire as an original member of Prince's band, The Revolution, and also working with the Minneapolis legend in all from 1979 to 1991. From Minneapolis, Matt, how are you? Great. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Yeah. So are you guys all thought out there yet or? We're getting there. Uh, spring has sprung and today we're getting a mix of freezing rain and a little bit of snow. But uh, after today, we'll be back up in the upper 40s and 
hopefully connecting with 50 uh, later this week. And uh, yes, spring is uh, in the air in the Twin Cities already, so it's great. Looking still got that, that, that Super Bowl buzz going, or is that pretty much all? Super Bowl buzz is gone. My fingers thawed out after performing uh, that one night during the Super Bowl week, and uh, we're all good to go. Excellent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, as a lifelong fan, you know, it's a thrill to have you on, so I really appreciate it. Thanks. You're welcome. Well, you know, I got to start out, of course, by asking you how you first got into music and keyboards. So if we could kind of get that foundation for Matt Fink, uh, we can move forward from there. Uh, well, you can thank uh, my illustrious uh, parents, uh, Irving and Harriet Fink, who uh, gave birth to me in 1958. And uh, by the age of six, maybe closer to seven, somewhere in there, six, six and a half, uh, they they had me uh, taking piano lessons, and uh, of course my older brother, who's you know like three grades ahead of me, he started lessons first. So you know I saw him uh, getting into it, and of course I that made me curious. So I you know I said, so when am I gonna get piano lessons, mom? You know, and she said, uh, soon, soon. Don't worry, we'll 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 let you give it a shot. You know, so. Uh, they, they got me going in it, and um, uh, I stuck with that uh, right up through my senior year in high school. I was taking lessons and even a little bit beyond that. But uh, it was, you know, had a lot of classical training, of course, uh, up until I was about 14. And that's when I requested to uh, get together with a, a jazz teacher who was located in Minneapolis. Uh, and he had another partner there as well, two, two teachers in this one studio downtown. And they were renowned teachers. And, and uh, once I got involved with him, uh, that's when I learned uh, the improvisational techniques that are needed in order to play uh, jazz and things like that. And it came in real handy for working with Prince because uh, it was all about the jamming that sound checks and rehearsals and trying to come up with interesting ideas for songwriting and all the rest of it. So that's how uh, I approached it uh, with Prince. And of course, Prince was fortunate enough to be uh, born into a family with a father who was a jazz musician who obviously influenced him in the same way I was influenced uh, by my teachers. And of course, my parents were both uh, theatrical majors at the University of Minnesota. So I was uh, exposed to that as well, uh, with the whole theater side of town, because my father was writing and directing plays and uh, doing voiceover work for commercials and things like that, along with my mother. So uh, they, they gave me a, a taste of both worlds, you know. I was encouraged to, to do whatever I wanted, of course, but... Uh, um, I chose the uh, music business field over the acting field, although I, you know, I could have done both probably. Or, and I've done a lot of voiceover work over the years myself. So, I'm guessing they must have been a couple of characters. They were. <laughs> uh, they're not with us anymore, but uh, they they were great parents. Uh, still are in the other side, <laughs> as I like to believe, and uh, you know, they. 
they were highly supportive of whatever I did and encouraged me to either be an actor or a musician or, or a scientist if I so chose to do. But, you know, of course, I was very interested in, in all aspects of those things growing up. So I could have gone any direction. In fact, I could have possibly even been a real doctor if I wanted <laughs> That's ironic. Yeah. <laughs> so, Matt, uh, walk us through, uh, you know, what professional experience you had prior to Prince and how you connected with Prince. Okay, so at the ripe old age of 12 and a half, I like to say 12 and a half, uh, <laughs> I don't go 12. No, uh, at the age of 12 and a half, uh, I had my first band gig comprised of um, kids in my neighborhood who were musicians. We, we formed our first band and uh, we're invited to perform at some girls' bat mitzvah. And, uh, and then from there, it moved on to other cover bands playing throughout junior high and high school. And then I was actually 18 or maybe, no, I think I was 19. I was out of high school by then, obviously. And Bobby Z, who I knew because we grew up in the same community, uh, approached me one evening when I was playing one eve out one night with another group and wanted me to hear Prince's demo tape because he had a copy of it because he worked for Prince's first manager as an assistant and had basically become an assistant helping Prince in a way. Like like his his boss said, Hey, I need you to help Prince get around town and you know show him the ropes with the music business and blah 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 blah. Of course, Prince was already playing and had been playing in a cover band before that as well and started writing in that band. But so so Bobby had become friends with friends with Prince. And Bobby's older brother David had produced uh, excuse me, Prince's demos that were going to be shopped to all the record labels out in LA and New York, which they were just preparing to do at the time with Owen Husney, Prince's first manager. So Bobby wanted me to hear Prince's demo tape and he came out to a show one night at a club we were playing at and he took me out to his car and he played me the demo and of course the first thing out of my mouth was uh, who's the band it's really great stuff you know what, what band is this he said it's not a band and I go what do you mean it's not a band he goes it's one guy I go what do you mean it's one guy he's a one-man band he goes yeah sort of he recorded and performed and played and produced and wrote everything in the studio. And I said, really? Wow, that's a rare quality. There are very few people that do that, uh, as far as I know. I knew that Todd Rundgren had been doing it quite a bit, and I know that there were a few other people like that in the studio. Stevie Wonder was capable, but uh, very rare. So I said, well, who is this guy? And he goes, he's a kid named Prince, and he's your age. I go, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you're both the same age. I go, really? That's amazing. Uh, how can I meet him? Is he looking for a band? You know, I mean, all these questions came up. What's he going to do? What's happening? So Bobby explained what was about to happen. And I just said to him, I said, well, let me know when he's ready to form a band. I'd love to meet him or I'd love to meet him anytime between now and whenever and just to, to see if we can connect. So when the time came to put the band together, uh, 
by the time I really caught wind that, you know, the record deal was done and everything was ready, uh, I discovered that they, Prince had hired another keyboard player already. So I never, I didn't really get an audition at that time. I was disappointed. Uh, but I knew who the keyboard player was that he first hired. And, and he's just a, a, an incredible player. Again, another uh, friend of mine, actually. Um, and we're both also the same age, same age as Prince. And then for whatever reason, he decided to uh, go and work for another artist out in L.A. and produce a record and play on a record. Uh, while, while things were just kind of in the beginning stages of the whole Prince thing. And Prince didn't have the patience to wait for him to come back to Minneapolis and work. He really wanted him around. So Prince just said to him, and, and they actually both sort of parted ways that Prince didn't want to be patient and wait for him and vice versa. The other guy didn't want to wait around either for Prince to you know get off the ground. So the door reopened. He had all the other players in place for that initial group, and then the, the uh, window of opportunity op reopened, and then I called Bobby and uh, Prince's manager and requested a, an audition at that time, and then I got my shot to go in, and that was in October of 78. Uh, and then it was about a three-week wait before Prince made his decision about who he was going to bring into the group out of about six to eight different keyboardists that he auditioned at that time. And uh, fortunately for me, he felt I was the, the choice at that time. Now, it's first time he came out of the place, so that was probably right after that. Yeah, it was about eight months after the first album, six months after the album came out, right in there. What was your first impression of, upon you know meeting or seeing or having exposure to him? He he played a, just a little bit of a joke on me when I walked into the audition. It was, uh, so did you learn the song So Blue? And I said, oh, no, was I supposed to learn that? And he says, ah, well, don't worry about it. There's no keyboards on it anyway. <laughs> he was almost kind of like a test, like, did you listen to the album? You know, if you really had listened closely, you would have noticed So Blue didn't have keyboards. Kind of a Kind of a test. And I said, well, yeah, I did. You know, I realized, yeah, you're right. There, there are no keyboards on that. But I was told to learn soft and wet and, you know, just as long as we're together for the audition. So I didn't really pay much attention to that song. He goes, oh, that's okay. I was just, you know, playing with you. And I went, okay. So he, he you know, was that was the kind of sense of humor he had. And he would use it on you even in, in an initial meeting like that to either maybe disarm you a little or test you see what you're made of, you know, if you're going to buckle under the pressure or uh, be, you know, stand up to it. And I know that the one thing that really impressed him about me is that the song Soft and Wet has a clavinet part in it that all the keyboardists, as I found out later, were struggling to perform because it's mixed into the song so well that it's difficult to make it out 100%, you know, the way it's, it, it blended in with all the other instruments. So trying to catch that part was not easy. And I even said to Prince, I said, look, at the audition, I said, you know, I, I think I'm getting close to this, but if you could just show me the part and play it for me, I 
think I can learn it from you directly by watching and listening. And that would go a long way to help me perform it. And he says, okay. So he, he got on the keyboard and he played it through yeah, a couple times. He says, is that enough for you? I go, I think so. And sure enough, you know, I, I pulled it together right there on the spot. And, and then we played the song several times and he was seemed very happy with the way I performed it at that time. And it's funky. I mean, that's a funky, not a, it's a little intricate, you know, it's kind of like playing superstition by uh, Stevie wonder, the clavinet part. So I think that one moment impressed him enough to want to hire me because no, none of the other keyboard players thought of that. They never said, Hey, can you show me the part? Or I can't hear it. They never would admit that, ah, oh, this is really hard to hear in the mix, whatever. So I was like the only guy that uh, I think approached it that way, and I, I think that impressed him. Were you present for the other guys? Uh, no. no, he kept all the auditions private. By the way, Yanni tried out. Really? He was a, yeah, he, Yanni was based in Minneapolis, you know, initially before he became a a solo artist and he played uh, with a band called chameleon and he was going to the university of minnesota to be a psychologist at the time and i knew him because in, i was the band that i was in i was actually in two bands uh, right out, out of high school uh, and while i was playing in the first group uh, chameleon was uh, another group playing all the clubs we were playing so we'd go watch each other play and talk to each other. And I knew him quite well. So, uh, were they, they by chance after the Herbie Hancock song? Say that again. Um, were they named after chameleon? This, the Hancock, the Herbie Hancock song? No, I didn't think so. Probably not that hip, right? No, they, they were, they were rock rockers. They were rock, you know, so Matt, when you got into uh, involved with Prince, uh, you know, did you have a particular genre of music that you were more comfortable with, or a bigger fan of, or did you just kind of like it all? Well, I liked all of it. Um, I was more of a pop rocker for many years, leading up to about you know eighteen. When I was about eighteen, is when I started learning more of the R and B pop stuff and playing uh, because what, what happened is, is the whole Saturday Night Fever thing came in and the band I was in right before Prince was, had latched onto that and we were playing all that music and all the funk and all the, we were doing a lot of Steely Dan at the time. Songs like Peg, which was a big hit at that time. Uh, so Stevie Wonder, in fact, I used to, I personally used to sing Isn't She Lovely in that band. So there was definitely um, those other influence came in after I'd been more of a, you know, yes, in Kansas guy, you know, playing in, in Boston, you know, we were playing all that material in the previous group and not really doing a lot of uh, R&B. We were doing some Steely Dan stuff, you know, like, you know, uh, Ricky Don't Lose That Number and things like that. But we were not playing any uh, R&B pop type stuff. In that particular group. So, did you find funk challenging, or did you just kind of fall into it? I fell into it. You know, I just used my ears, and and because of my, you know, jazz training at that time, um, from a technical standpoint, you know, it, it fell into place 
pretty easily, actually. So what was your first um, public performance with Prince after that? So, you know, he brought me into the band right there, late October, 78. And then we rehearsed, you know, November and December. And uh, I believe the Warner Brothers records executives, excuse me, requested a uh, showcase gig so they could come out to Minneapolis and see what Prince had for a band, his initial band. And so we played um, at this little theater up in North Minneapolis where Prince grew up called the Capri Theater, which is still hanging out, still there. And uh, so I do remember, you know, he had several of these Warner execs came in and it was just dead of winter, early January. January is about, you know, 20 below at night. <laughs> they got a taste of like the coldest possible moment you could come to Minneapolis. 20 below at night, you know, maybe 10, six below for a high that day, you know, that kind of stuff. So we did two shows, two days in a row, two nights. We did two two shows, and uh, that was the first gig ever with Prince. Wow. Yeah. So before we uh, came on air, I mentioned to you that I had seen his first West Coast appearance at the Roxy on Sunset in Hollywood, which would have been not too long after that one, right? So you were at that one. Do you recall that at all? Yeah, and that was um, – I think that was more like summer of 79 or spring, possibly. Am I right? Do you know? Do you have any time frame for it? I, I do not remember what month it was. It was several months later, but it was that year. It may have even been late summer. I'd, I'd have to go back and look in some of the – there's some people that have that uh, in some books. That they have the accurate time frame. But, uh, yeah, and I do recall um, that very well and how that went. It went pretty well. I mean, the one thing, you know, of course, it was the first time I had seen him. I only knew him from soft and wet at that point. Mm -hmm. And he was wearing the bikini briefs and the leg warmers and only singing in the uh, falsetto. Right. And it was interesting right away to see some of the brothers were trying to like still figure him out. Didn't yeah. feel so comfortable with him. Right. But the women were fawning over him like oh, already. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause I remember that same year we played in, uh, San Francisco, I think we were at the Warfield Theater, and I recall uh, at the end of the show, we left and we had, we had tried to go out the backstage doors, and at that time, you know, everything's being run on the cheap, so we didn't really have any security, nothing. We They opened the doors to the rear of the venue, and we were mobbed by, a, you know, I can't remember, there were hundreds of women primarily women, like a scene out of A Hard Day's Night with the Beatles. And they literally, and I'm not kidding you, they shredded Prince's shirt off his body, tore it to shreds. No wonder he felt a little unsafe at times after that. Yeah, like it was like a, it was like a group of piranhas. <laughs> you know? Wow. So they left me alone. They just looked at me like, yeah, who's this guy? You know, <laughs> it was kind of fun, though. And I, I mean, a few of them, look, you know, talked to me, but they didn't care about, you know, ripping my, my suit off. So, 
And this, uh, of course, was a record that was out that time in his first yeah. crossover hit, I Want to Be Your Lover. Yeah. Um, Bambi was tremendous at that show, I remember. Yeah. Um, so did you do anything in the studio on this one? No, no, no band member had uh, worked with him on the first two albums. Yeah, there was nothing on those. So was it a challenge to kind of replicate what he had done? I, I wouldn't say so. No, I don't know if I'd just call it a challenge. It just was a matter of, you know, getting all those same sounds back again. And, and it was kind of his job to know what he did in the studio and say, hey, hey yeah, here's the keyboard stuff I did and, and direct me and, and Gail Chapman, who was still in the group at that time. You know, to, to divvy up the correct parts, and if we needed help, you know, we'd say, "Hey, can you show us what you did there?" Because, oh, again, it, it's in the mix a little too too nicely, where you can't pick out every note. So um, that's how we would work things. And you know, technically, we were both able to handle the songs. It's just a matter of you know working them out. There was a little turnover in the band around that time, uh, roughly within a year or so. Andre Simone leaving on bass and Des Dickerson. Um, no, Des did not leave yet at that time. It was a couple of years for Des. It was right? Gail, the Gail. Who left. So, so was there some friction or what, what happened? Uh, well, with Gail, Gail was uh, at that time very religious and, and, and was involved with a, an organization called the Way Corps is what it was called, if I remember. So in a sense, it was like a very evangelical wing of the Christian religion. Um, I don't know if people are even aware of it. I don't know if it was that big or anything. I just know that she was having a problem with songs like Head and you know, some of the racier stuff he was going to start to do on Dirty Mind. And during the Rick James tour, you know, he was having her, you know, come up to him during the show and he would like French kiss her on stage and do stuff. He was doing outrageous things with her, you know. And um, I think that was part of the problem. So she opted out. He thought, eh, this is just too much for my own morals and my own values to be to be doing this so i'm sure that's what happened and why she left she did kind of verbalize it to everybody at the time and she and I, she must have discussed it with prince personally but un, unbeknownst to the rest of us i don't know what what happened there so she left and then andre um again he didn't really express why he left at that time uh, he may have with Prince personally, because they grew up together and were good friends and all that. And I think it just had to do, it might, mm -hmm. from what I tell, he wanted to be a solo artist like Prince. He didn't like being just a side man. He didn't want to wait several years for Prince to succeed and be the, you know, the guy that was, you know, Prince's right hand man, side man, best buddy, slash whatever. And he, he just opted out. I think there was possibly some creative differences. I think and Andre wanted to uh, 
go some other direction with the music and you know that's the biggest reason probably why it's the only thing i can think of so when you're working on the the dirty mind record um which you are on this one right yeah yeah so just a little bit one song you know a little bit on the song dirty mind co-wrote the music on that and then played the solo on the song head and then other than that i think maybe um that was it. I don't think anyone else played on it. Maybe Des. Yeah. It's a killer solo on Head. I mean, oh, it was my, instantly my favorite track because I gravitate more towards the really funky ones. But um, was that hard to get down, or did it you just flow out, or how'd you come up with that? And, and what, why didn't Prince play it himself? Because he was looking for a different flavor. You know, we we both had different approaches and styles when it came to soloing. Prince is an incredible soloist. By the way, I don't, you know, short change him at all. Um, I mean, just listen to the solo on Soft and Wet. That thing is incredible. So um, he just wanted my flavor. He wanted to have that other flavor. He had come to the conclusion by then probably that he wanted to get some input from other band members, obviously. Uh, the only reason the song Dirty Mind happened is because we were jamming at the rehearsal space one day and i just happened to hit that chord progression improvising once we completed dirty mind he had me come back another day and said hey i want you to do a solo on this song and also the song um the stick by the time i did the synth solos on that so uh yeah and when i went in to do the dirty mind solos i think i i did about six or seven eight tops you know takes until one of them stuck and we kept erasing it until we got one and then once we had one uh that was the end of it it was just impro improv all the way you know and uh you know much like how you know that jazz training again coming in handy and knowing your scales <laughs> so yeah that's just how it works yeah, I mean, you killed it live, too, every time. You know, I was like, doctor. Boom. Yeah. When when did you get the doctor persona? During uh, the Rick James tour where we were his support act. And that was in 79. Uh, I think we went uh, late 79 into 1980. Or I, I mean, we actually may have even joined him later than I can't remember the exact first month of that tour. Might have even been like February. Anyway, we were out there f through April or something like that uh, of 1980. And um, right after about the first couple shows, I had to switch my look because Rick James was uh, wearing my outfit during one of the songs that I had on. So Prince asked me to switch up my, my image. Just out of a coincidence he had it on? Yeah. So that's when I that's when I changed my image to the doctor. Uh, those rumor that rumored sort of feud or bad blood between Rick and, and Prince was there any thing to that or was it just something that the somebody made up? No, I mean there yeah, there was some issues with with Prince and Rick because you know Rick 
I think became somewhat jealous of Prince because we were going on stage and kicking ass quite a bit and affecting some things for him. But it really was, you know, probably had something to do with the fact that, you know, Rick liked to drink his Corvassier and smoke his weed and do his Coke and whatever the hell he was doing drug-wise at the time. And he was always attempting to get Prince and us to party and do drugs with him. And, of course, Prince was vehemently anti-drug at that time. And um, that bothered him. That bothered Prince. He didn't want to have anything to do with that. And then the jealousy that ensued being on tour with us, you know, and like in the beginning was like, well, you know, he probably thought, oh, we'll help this kid out and get, let him give him a start being our warm-up back. And then when he realized that, that we were pretty monstrous and, and kind of affecting how things were going for him, uh, that made him somewhat jealous. But I, I thought, you know, he, he didn't need to be jealous. I mean, his crowd was there and his fans were there and they, they loved him. You know, I mean, it, I didn't see any reason why he should be jealous if he was. I do know that that one night at a, towards the end of the tour at one of the after show parties, he, he grabbed Gail Chapman and, you know, tried to get her going, if you know what I mean. And was it that, that made that upset Prince and she, you know, he was coming on to her and it got kind of out there. And, uh, and then right at the end of the tour, as it turns out, Rick James and his people actually stole a couple of our synthesizers and used them on a record. They, they played in, uh, with them and then returned them to Prince afterwards. Wow. wow. <laughs> and this was, I didn't know anything about it until much later Prince revealed that to me. He re, he revealed that, that that had taken place. So he had a lot of balls, Mr. James. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's just weird. That, that he did that. Yeah, I, I missed that tour. I'm not sure that it ever made it as far as Los Angeles. But um, I, 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 I did see Rick James tour at the Forum in Los Angeles in 81, and it was a great show. So, yeah. I mean, I think he was just paranoid, but yeah. Yeah, he was just being paranoid and being jealous and being, you know, unjustly irrational about things. And uh, But he was nice to me. I never had a problem with the guy. And all the band members were cordial and I never had a problem with anybody, you know, so I don't know. It's, it's one of those things. The rivalry took place, I think. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, what, what are your impressions, impressions of, of Prince as a musician, especially, um, and everything around that, you know, a being a producer, a ranger, his multitude of talents, what really stood out to you? And did you ever kind of just have to say, is this guy for real? Or, I mean, were, how often were you just kind of blown away? Well, you know, I just couldn't believe how fluent a player he was on each instrument because you, you've got to be really A-talented, and lucky to have that talent and be, you know, be, be able to sit down and, and dedicate your whole waking moment to all those instruments. 
you know, there's no TV, much TV in your life or book reading or going out or doing whatever, you know, this guy, once he was rolling was 24 seven in the music, you know, maybe four hours of sleep and the rest of the time was dedicated to, you know, rehearsing the band, going in the studio all night long, recording, getting maybe four hours of sleep and waking up and doing it all over again. And that's the kind of dedication he had. I know there were moments when he took time out to go see a movie, you know, late at night, he could do that. Or um, there was a little bit of socializing with the band and, you know, have we, he, he liked to go out and take a break during rehearsal and go play baseball and play, let's go play softball, you know, or let's take a, a basketball break, you know, ping pong, you know, whatever. He, he did like that, you know. In the early days, he liked to go meet at the uh, roller garden in St. Louis Park, where I grew up. He liked to have us meet there and go roller skating or go to the YMCA and go swimming. You know, he wanted everybody to get exercise. So, um, but his dedication to his craft was like no other musician I'd ever met. And I knew a lot of, you know, great uh, musicians from the Twin Cities here, very talented people. Very few multi-instrumentalists that could do drums, bass, guitar, keyboards equally on each instrument in, in the, his abilities. So that was astounding for someone that age who had gained that kind of, you know, talent or ability to do that. And I think it's just, you know, he was born with that talent, obviously, and utilized it in a great way and then was clever enough to write those songs without anybody's input really you know, when you think about the, the that created creative thing that he had and obviously warner brothers saw that in him you know uh, they didn't really want to give him production control early on they, maurice white was one of the guys that what what maurice white was one of the guys that was pitched right he wanted to produce Prince, in the yeah. and then they, and then he said, Prince said no, and then the guy that they did bring in to oversee the album, at least just be hanging out, you know, Prince and Andre teased him incessantly to the point where he, he couldn't take it anymore, and he walked out of the whole situation. <laughs> I think his name was um, the Tommy Vicari. Vicari was his last name. I could have the wrong first name. All I know is that the story was Prince and Andre played a practical joke on him and one too many and the, the guy had had it. He said, I'm out of here. You guys are driving me crazy. See ya. <laughs> there was a method to that madness. Yeah, yeah. So, but but he wasn't really there to be the producer. He was just there to kind of oversee and keep him in line and they didn't, you know, it was just useless. Uh, anyway, um, so yeah, just, you know, Prince got to a level of proficiency as a, as a musician to where he would think what he wanted to play and then he would lay it down on tape in one take. Brain to fingertips in one take. That stuff is, you know, I know other musicians that can do that on their, their one main instrument, but they don't do it on bass, drums, keyboards, and guitar all at once, you know, but they can, they can play like that. 
I knew people with perfect, I know people who have what's called perfect pitch and they're able to listen to another person's song and write the chords down to that song as they're listening to it. That kind of thing, like hearing what's being played and transcribing on the fly, which is a gift too. No, very few people have that ability, the, the perfect pitch thing, as you know. Yeah. But uh, but Prince, even though he, I know he didn't have what's called perfect pitch, you know he probably had relative pitch. It didn't matter. He he still was able to do what he did and uh, hear the music in his head in advance of playing it and being able to lay it down quickly. Unbelievable. Yeah. So what was so unique and special, would you say, about your relationship with Prince and his music that you were able to, you know, outlast the rest of the revolution and be part of that for so long? You must have shared something different from some of the other folks that were in the band. Um, I don't know about that per se. Uh, I mean, I did bring what I brought to the table, obviously that he, he, he must've wanted to tap into, but he did utilize everybody in one shape or another. I mean, Mark Brown certainly wrote some stuff with Prince. Wendy and Lisa were heavily utilized, uh, later on in the group, obviously, when the revolution came together, you know, songs, uh, albums like, uh, of course, Purple Rain, where we were all involved with some of those songs. And then Around the World in the Day and, and the Parade album were very much heavy collaborations with Wendy and Lisa. And I was, I felt I was underutilized, but, you know, he made that, that connection with them at that time. And so he, he wanted to tap into what they had to offer more than the rest of us. Um, and, and of course, when the time came for them to be let go, and Bobby at the same time, you know, late in 1986, I was highly opposed to that and voiced my concern that he was making a mistake by doing that. You know, but, you know, unfortunately, Wendy and Lisa and he had had a disagreement and, you know, like, uh, I think it was early September or late August of, of that year, um, which precipitated them wanting to, to leave, but right before a tour, you know, right before we had to go to Japan and, uh, you know, people were going to be put out of work. People were going to lose money. So Prince said, no, 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 I don't, I don't want you to quit. Don't quit, you know, and uh, persuaded them to do the tour. And then it looked like, they had smoothed things over, and I thought for sure things were going to move forward with them. They were, they were still going to be in the group. Um, I didn't realize that he still thought, eh, you know, maybe it is best to part company at this point. Do you, Matt, do you recall the um, show at the Wiltern in 86 in Los Angeles? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that show. Um, yeah. That was about the only – there were not a lot of shows in the States related yeah. to Parade. Right. Um, but, yeah. But regardless of all that, you know, when, when it came time for him to, you know, I mean, there, there were no issues with Bobby. He just wanted to uh, move on and work with Sheila E for whatever reason. You know, he was looking to, to bring her in. So, I, of course, I was disappointed. I, I voiced my concern about it. And he said, no, I've made my mind up. And, you know, you're 
I would understand if you wanted to leave because I'm letting your bandmates go, but I, I'm certainly not letting you go. I'm not going to fire you, but I, you have a choice to stay or go at this point. And, you know, I decided to hang out, obviously, for at least another four years. Uh, and, and I really didn't want to quit when I, when I left four years later, but uh, there were some mitigating circumstances that happened at that time where I had to say to him, hey, I, I just can't do that show on that at that day right at the moment unless blah, blah, blah happens, you know, and then he didn't want to meet those demands. And so he, he got a sub for me and stayed with him after that. And that was the end of it. So the minute you show any of that kind of, I can't do it, you know, then he may replace you. So that's what happened there. Yeah. How did you? 12 years of work, but you know, that's how it goes. How did you contend with, uh, you know, being on call basically around the clock and that sort of thing? You were okay with that lifestyle? Well, when, when he started doing that kind of stuff, um, I didn't really, he didn't really go nuts with, uh, with me on that too much. There were, or, you know, it was mainly Wendy and Lisa later on that he was doing that 24 seven on call thing. With me and Bobby, not so much, or Mark even. Um, of course, Mark Brown le, le, had already known he was going to be leaving the revolution about six months before he left because he was going to sign with Motown. But he really didn't tell us about it. He told Prince, but we, the rest of us weren't aware that he was planning to leave when he did. It, and the timing of him leaving took place at the exact same moment that Wendy and Lisa and Bobby were let go. So. Uh, but no, I never had a problem with being on call. The only time I was, I took issue with it was when Bobby, um, had a special, you know, he eloped with his wife and then a few months later decided to have a, a private like wedding party event. And when the party was wrapping, not really wrapping up, but it was about midnight and things were sort of semi wrapping up, but the party was still going. And, and Prince said, hey, let's all go out to the rehearsal space and jam. Let's go. And then he basically ordered everybody to leave the party, all of us guys, the whole band, and go play or rehearse at midnight, beyond midnight. I think it was by the time we got there. It's probably about quarter to one. And that disappointed me. I thought, well, wait a minute. You're kind of delivering this thing to go out and jam and play and it's Bobby's night to have his party, you know? So that was the one time I, I took issue with him uh, using his sort of on-call methods, so to speak, and just decide out of the blue he was gonna do something like that. Most, most of the time when you were doing so many of those rehearsals and even after shows and things like that, was it just that it was, you were on such a sort of like, musical hire was also exciting and, and different that it kind of energized you or were you just kind of, man, when's this going to end sometimes? Mm, well, um, that's a good question. And from what I remember, you know, I, I felt that it was more than fair for, you know, what he was paying everybody to, to be on call 24 seven. I didn't think it was that unfair of a situation. You know, 
any anybody who's a musician out there and and has an opportunity to work with a genius like Prince and be signed have their their artist be signed to a major label like Warner Brothers and to have that happen coming out of a midwestern city like Minneapolis which really those kinds of opportunities were very few and far between so when you when that is sitting there you don't question it you just take it yeah. and and work it as hard as you can so that's why you know it never bothered me